You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Somerset County Tourism. Hear stories from local brewers and distillers from the New Jersey Sip and See Trail on episode 647 of Beer Sessions Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. It's the week of October 5th, 2022. We're doing a remote recording with a, a good friend and a beer legend from Buffalo, New York. So, uh, Ethan, introduce yourself, please. Sure. I'm Ethan Cox. I'm a co-founder and co-owner of Community Beer Works here in Buffalo. Uh, and, uh, prior to that, you know, lots of homebrewing and beer judging and beer history writing and, uh, you know, lots of different, lots of different hats. No, you know, Ethan's an esteemed brewer and authority, uh, in the state, in the region. And, um, I remember I met you, I don't know, five or six years ago, you were at a New York state event in New York city. And, uh, I drank the community beer works whale, which, which you had made, um, I know you've yeah. made a lot of great beers, and let, let, I think this is a good show to talk about Buffalo because I love like regional identities. So, Buffalo, what's Buffalo style pizza? Yeah, <laughs> oh, what's well, Buffalo style pizza? Um, Buffalo style pizza is uh, is uh, something that we uh, here uh, very much cherish. Um, it's a little bit of a of a of a cross between uh, New York style and maybe Chicago, uh, in the sense that uh, it's a little bit of a thicker crust, so it's a little bit more bready. It's not usually got too much uh, salt to it, so uh, it doesn't really make you thirsty as much. You're gonna have uh, a somewhat sweet sauce, semi sweet, um, and then your mozz. But the Almost critical point, if you're going to have pepperonis on your pizza, and you don't have to, you can have Italian sausage, you can have your olives, whatever it is you like. But in Buffalo, if your pepperoni isn't the little cup and char variety, then you are definitely not doing it right. Uh, cup and char is critical to the Buffalo pizza. So what are so, those, the, the, the little cup, cup pepperonis? Yeah, it's, it's just a smaller, thicker uh, slice that in the oven, you know, they're at 900 degrees or 850 or whatever, starts to curl up, get charred around the edge, and then it captures just a little bit of grease in each one. And uh, it's a, it, it makes such a huge difference. Oh, wow, man. It sounds really good. Is it thick, thick crust or thin? It's pretty thick. It's definitely thick compared to, you know, like your Neapolitan style uh, or even your Detroit style. It's a little thicker than that even, too. Oh, wow. It sounds really good. Yeah, no, we're used to eating yeah. the, the pizza at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick. Big shout out to them. Uh, old world. Yes, I could say that's Neapolitan style wood fired yeah. pizza. Yeah. So just like more backstory on you, because I've never really got a chance to talk the whole, the whole you know, nine yards with you. Um, Ethan Cox, sure. Community Beer Works. When did you start brewing and, and, and what's this, the story of Community Beer Works? 
Sure. Well, you know, for myself anyway, I, uh, I started home brewing in college uh, because I studied abroad. I studied in Ireland. I was 19. And when I was, you know, living in Ireland, I was allowed to just go to the pub and drink beer. So I started acquiring a better taste for beer. I drank a fair amount of Guinness, uh, but also Irish red ales and uh, um, even Belgian styles, uh, which I hadn't really ever seen or had uh, in the U.S., were were sometimes available there. So I came I came back to Boston. I was at Northeastern University, and uh, I came back to Boston, and I couldn't buy beer, and I thought that was silly. But I I found out I could buy a, a beer making kit. And all the ingredients. So I said, okay, simple. I'll start making my own beer. Um, and that's that's how I began homebrewing. I uh, I continued to homebrew all the way through graduate school. And then uh, when when we moved back to Buffalo in uh, in 2005 2006, uh, I joined one of the local homebrewing clubs. And knowing that I wasn't really going to move again for the foreseeable future, I, I, I really dived deep. So the Sultans of Swig is one of the two home brewing clubs here in Buffalo. They're great guys. I joined the Niagara Association of Home Brewers. It's one of the other big ones. And uh, over the course of years, uh, besides doing a lot of brewing and uh, entering in competitions and winning some awards, um, I also, you know, I got involved like organizationally. I became uh, vice president and president. I also started helping out with the organization of the of the uh, competitions. Um, even doing as much as being like the judge director and the overall competition organizer and things like that. So went pretty far down the homebrewing rabbit hole. Um, and then in around uh, 2010, uh, me and a buddy. Uh, Dave by name, uh, got it into our minds that, you know, Buffalo could certainly use more breweries. Um, at that time, uh, around, uh, you know, then there was really only one brewery in Buffalo that was a craft brewery. Uh, all of our historic breweries had gone out of business in the early 70s. And the, the one attempt at getting a microbrewery, what they would have called a microbrewery at the time, uh, to get that up and running had had already come and gone. So in 2000, somebody, uh, a guy named Tim and his partner, started a brewery called Flying Bison. And in 2010, they were still the only brewery in Buffalo. So me and a group of friends, my friend Dave and a few other people, um, got organized and uh, opened up Community Beer Works. We got started around 2012. We started out as a nano brewery, um, which is a term you don't hear so much anymore. Uh, but at the time, it was it was a pretty hot idea because everybody knew getting into brewing was expensive. Brewing equipment is, you know, very not cheap, um, and you know businesses are hard too. So we started out at a very very small scale, uh, making beer a barrel and a half at a time, which is not a lot of beer. Talking about three half kegs uh, <laughs> per batch. Yeah, um, almost crazy, really. But uh, but at the time, it was a viable model for you know getting underway. It wasn't going to to last. You're going to have to scale at some point. But it was proof of concept. Did you have a fancy pilot pilot system? What were you using? We we did. We uh, we bought we bought this uh, pretty cool system from a company called Stout uh, Kettles and Tanks. Uh, they're still around in uh, Portland, Oregon. 
Um, and it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was cool. We bought from them, we bought the whole brew house as well as our fermentation. We started out fermenting actually it, doing our temperature control just with, uh, just by building all these little rooms that the fermenters were in and temperature controlling the room. So air control rather than, you know, glycol, um, which is crude, but it got, it got it done more or less. We, we, we got, we got good beers out of that system for as long as we used it. Uh, by the time we were done there in uh, 2018, we were actually doing like four batches in a day into a seven barrel fermenter because um, we had continued to grow and we had to, we had to make more beer. So a brew day became like four batches back to back, which was crazy. Wow. Um, and that's why we, yeah. Ethan, what was your first customer? Where did you sell those first half kegs of beer? Oh, that's an awesome question, Jimmy. Let me tell you. Um, there, is, there are two bars in town that were really uh, the champions of craft beer at that time. And they're right next door to one another, conveniently enough. So one is called Mr. Good Bar, and the other is called Coles. Uh, the owner of Coles is a guy named Mike Schatzel. And if you, if you know the Buffalo beer scene, his name might be familiar to you. We know Mike. We know Mike, yeah. Yeah, he, he owns Brewery Cult and Man. Uh, and the other bar is owned by a guy named Bobby. And the two of them, uh, uh, the two of them were uh, instrumental, really, in, in developing the craft beer scene in this town and inspiring a bunch of other brewers and breweries to, to get underway because they knew that they would have somewhere to sell their beer. Uh, you don't start and then break out into the, into the football you know, arena right off the bat. So those were our first two accounts. Uh, actually, not long after we opened, Mike opened a second bar called the Blue Monk, which was kind of famous. And uh, that was like our third account. Um, so we owe those guys a huge uh, debt of gratitude for, for, for championing us and buying our beer right, right off the bat. Wow. I, I know a guy yeah. named Ryan Bedford. I think he managed at the Blue Monk. Oh yeah, yeah. He came. Then he, he came to New York, and I knew him from manage. He managed a number of bars here. Yeah, he was at the Double Winter the last time I knew him to be in the business. I think he may have uh, gone back into uh, marketing or advertising or graphic design because I know that that was uh, one of his interests too. But yeah, good dude, Ryan. He was awesome. So you got you guys kept growing. Wow. I mean, again, back 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 to that startup. I mean. It just seems so quaint and innocent back then when, you know, there were people doing, getting licensed like Blind Bat on Long Island or, or Bridge and Tunnel in Queens. Oh, yeah, Paul. They literally had yeah. a garage that was separate from their home. With the zoning, they were able to get licensed as a, as a small production brewery. Yeah, yeah. Paul's a good dude. I know him uh, because we started out around the same time. So we had a lot of similar problems and we did a lot of problem solving together. I haven't seen him in a couple of years now, but uh, he uh, he's still at it and um, I'm happy for him for that. It's not easy. Um, but you're right. I mean, there, it was sort of it was it was kind of like, I don't know, romantic isn't quite the the word for it. But I mean, you know, there was just a lot of hustle in those days and you felt like anything was possible and that unlimited growth was possible. Um, we self-distributed at that time and that was mostly me actually. I wasn't the brewer there uh, because we had a guy, we had somebody else who actually knew how to brew too. And you know, there was a need for actually moving the beer. So I, we bought a van and 
I drove beer all over Buffalo, thousands of miles of deliveries over the, over the course of years. Um, not to mention, you know, my back, <laughs> and my legs and everything else I paid uh, for it. But, um, but it was great, actually. Self-distribution, that phase of the company's growth was actually pretty great because, you know, I was doing sales as well as marketing, as well as logistics and delivery. You know, I'd roll in there and I would talk to the owners, talk to the managers, talk to the bartenders try to get them excited about the brand. Um, sometimes I had to tell them that they owed me money, by the way. Uh, and, you know, and, oh, and by the way, here's more beer anyway. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So it was, you know, it was actually, it was a lot of work. It was exhausting. Uh, those two days of the week that I did deliveries, I would come home and just, you know, more or less collapse. But, um, but it was good, you know, it was, it was intimate. And I felt like, I felt like I knew my customers, not the people who were actually buying the beer at the bar, but the people who were buying the beer for the bar. Yeah. And, um, they, and they knew you were common. And, and that, that, you know, that adds yeah. a lot of value to the experience, you know, it, it, it does. it's lasting relationships. Yeah. To this day, uh, you know, there's a lot of places I go into and they're like, Hey man, you know, so that's, that is pretty cool. And I think it contributed greatly to the growth of the brand. Uh, that I could, you know, that I could be the, that, that one of the owners was really also the brand ambassador. Eventually, we did hire a salesperson because it turns out it's not easy to try to sell people beer while you're also collecting <laughs> money they owe you. Those really should be two different jobs. Um, but uh, so, you know, once we had a sales guy, I was less, I was less involved with new accounts and we'd get new accounts and new accounts. And I'd be like, I've never been to that place. I don't know anyone there. You know, and I started to feel a little bit more removed from the from those customers, but uh, but it was great for the first few years, and uh, I really, I really, you know, I look back on those years fondly, even though oh, yeah. they were there was a lot of labor. So, yeah. so it seems like naturally you have a gift for organizational skills. You you were organizing uh, homebrew club, you know, tastings and and all that. Um, yeah. How did you grow as part of Community Beer Works in that regard? Well, um, you know, I mean, at the point where we realized we just had to scale up in a way that we couldn't do at the place we were with the equipment we had, um, we, you know, me and one of the other partners, a guy named Chris Smith, um, spent uh, a good couple of years trying to find the investment cash and the location where we could expand. And uh, after, after, you know, throwing a lot of darts at a lot of boards, uh, we finally got a bullseye. We finally got some investors who were uh, interested in helping us move into a bigger space and, and grow the brand more. So um, that was around 2018, 2017, 2018. And uh, the, the next thing that I got to do that was really a lot of fun was design the brewery. We hired an architect and a, and a, a construction company and everything that you need for that. Um, we commissioned a brew house from uh, a company uh, down in uh, Virginia, I think they were. And, uh, you know, that was all new and exciting for me as well, you know, meeting with an architect, coming up with the vision for the space. I mean, we, we rehabbed an old building on the west side of Buffalo. So the dimensions, you know, the envelope was kind of given, but I got, I got to imagine what the tap room would look like and execute on that. I got to imagine what the brew house, you know, the brewing side would look like and execute on that. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was also, you know, a new skill set for me, um, but, but, but very, very rewarding. 
Oh man. And we got that brewery up and running by, you know, sometime in 2018 or so is when we finally opened that that new brewery and that's where we brew to this day. Oh, that's great. Hey, so tell me more about yeah. the west side of Buffalo. Is that where you're from? Uh, the west side is the best side. Um yeah, I like to think I'm from the west side. Uh there's a little bit more west side you could be from than than the house I actually literally grew up in, but uh Buffalo is kind of divided east and west by Main Street of all streets. And I'm definitely on the west side of Main Street. And growing up, that's where I played. That's where I ran around. You know, there so what's a- the difference west, west and east? Well, the west side is, uh, in general, it's, uh, you know, it's the side of, the, of town that's closer to the river. Um, it is definitely the part of town where you see the most immigrants uh, Buffalo right now is getting immigrants from a lot of really cool countries, and they are mostly settling in various pockets of the West Side. Historically, it was the part of town that also had uh, a lot of concentration of Italians, and there's a legacy of that um, in some of the businesses that are still operating and some of the restaurants that are still operating. Um, but that uh, that population, you know, gentrified like they do and kind of moved out to the suburbs and made way for the next uh, immigrant wave, uh, which was mostly uh, Spanish speakers, a lot from Puerto Rico and from the Caribbean in general. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, so that's the west side, whereas the, the east side is a majority black population, and uh, it has a different vibe for sure, but uh, also really cool. So Buffalo is a real city. You know, people. I, I really, I've never, I've never been to Buffalo, and then we did one show. We talked to Mike, oh, yeah. Mike, okay. Mike Shaxel about um thin you man it you know yeah, i you i do come, know, i do know um oaks um jonathan oaks he's yeah, a jonathan oaks, cider yeah. and winery steampunk cider that's right so yep he's a good dude he's a good dude yeah you come on up here and we will show you a good time i guarantee it oh i know that this reputation <laughs> in buffalo i, I remember yeah. that definitely buffalo is, is a good alcohol town which is Actually, that's how I kind of I classify places now. Are they good alcohol towns or not? I mean, everybody parties, yeah. but not everybody parties. Sure. <laughs> well, Buffalo does have a reputation. I mean, just look at the Bills fan base. Uh, they're the best tailgate in the entire NFL, and anybody who thinks otherwise is wrong. Um, no question about that. And also, you know, we're a blue-collar town, so our bars, they all close at 4 um, that's a legacy from having third shift workers who wanted to get a beer when they got off at midnight or one. Well, all, all bars close at 4 a.m. That's amazing. All bars can close at four. I mean, there's certainly some bars that shut down at one or two because, you know, they're good. But uh, yeah, no, there's plenty of bars that still go till four. And some of those bars open again at six. Well, <laughs> so, so, you, so you also, yeah. you know, in addition to being a co-founder and brewer at a well-known brewery you wrote a book about buffalo beer um when, when did yeah. you write that tell us a little bit about that because i didn't know that side of you and i'm, I'm realizing yeah. you have a lot of knowledge <laughs> well the book was published <laughs> in 20 <laughs> thanks the book was published in 2015 i didn't write it by myself i have a co-author his name is mike rizzo uh, he's the lead author and he actually did more of the the writing itself we shared uh, a lot of the research 
And uh, I, did, I wrote all the captions and I also got all the photographs oh, wow. uh, because I knew people in town who had, uh, you know, access to different kinds of archives and like cool old um, Bruriana and stuff like that. But yeah, it was a joint effort and I, I definitely wouldn't have been able to do it by myself. Um, Mike Rizzo, who was my writing partner, also already had published several books. So he was really the, the one that um, it was Arcadia Publishing that um, came to him basically and said, hey, you know, we're doing a series of history books, beer history books for all these different regions. Would you be interested in doing the one from Buffalo? And then he reached out to me and said, look, I can write, but, you know, let's work on this together, um, especially because you can help market it because <laughs> you've got a brewery, which is true. So it was a joint effort, um, but it was absolutely fascinating to jump into the history of, of Buffalo's brewing industry. Um, it's, a, you know, so many good stories in there. We had a lot of breweries before Prohibition came around. Um, at one time, we had as many as 37 or 38 breweries. That was in the 1870s. Uh, but then there was a period of consolidation, as you might expect. And by the eve of Prohibition, we were rocking about 19 breweries. But we were also producing four or five times as much beer as we were when we had like 38. So Buffalo's brewing industry, like a lot, um, grew and grew very fast, especially in the period between 1870 and Prohibition. Um, fueled mostly by German immigrants who were coming to Buffalo and coming with either a thirst or a, uh, a desire to, to quench that thirst by starting a brewery. So um, we did pretty well for ourselves. Yeah, what, what were some of the, the, the Buffalo breweries of note from back then? Oh, yeah. Well, the biggest one before Prohibition was a brewery called Lang's. Uh, that's L-A-N-G. Um, Lang, like all of these guys, you know, came from somewhere in Germany and grew his brewery from something really tiny. Actually, he started out working in somebody else's brewery um, and then struck out on his own. And by the time he was, uh, by the time Prohibition hit, uh, Lang alone was producing a couple hundred thousand barrels a year. And the Buffalo Brewing industry itself was producing almost a million barrels a year across all those 19 breweries. So it was, it was a large industry. Um, but what's interesting, so Lang was one of them. Uh, one of the other big ones that you hear about is uh, Iroquois. Um, and uh, they, uh, as the name suggested, uh, you know, used a lot of like Native American motifs in their advertising. It's not very PC anymore, but uh, you know, in the 1800s, uh, people weren't able to complain about it so much yet. Um, but they did really well for themselves. Another brewery that was a big one is the William Simon Brewery. And in fact, those last two that I mentioned are two of the ones that actually managed to reopen after Prohibition. Langs, as big as it was, did not. Uh, they spent that time diversifying the business. And by the time beer was legal again, they were like, we're good. We do bakery. We do real estate. We do dairy. We're all set. Um, but yeah, uh, 19 breweries closed, about eight or nine breweries reopened uh, when Prohibition ended. Uh, so uh, William Simon was one of those. The Christian Wayand Brewery uh, became um, like the owner of the Iroquois brand. And so they reopened uh, as Iroquois. Um, and a couple others reopened. Phoenix was one too. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, you know uh, one of my other favorites is, yeah. Just a, right before Prohibition, what, what kind, what styles of beer were, were they making? What were the ones that, that people were uh, drinking? Do you know? 
Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you know, the record there is a little bit thinner because you really have to just find the old labels. It's not really talked about in the newspapers quite as much. People didn't care as much about like all the particular brands, right? You know, there wasn't like a brewery didn't make, I don't know, 30 or 40 different types of beer in a year, right? They just made their, their three or four brands. Mostly they did make light lagers, not a huge surprise. That was the, that was what the Germans brought with them. The brewing industry prior to the Germans showing up had more ales and porters, but as you uh, as you got more and more German breweries, you got a lot more of those light lagers. They did make uh, wheat beers or vice beers, absolutely. Um, and we even have some evidence to show that they made a Berliner Weiss, or one of the breweries made a Berliner Weiss, so they actually made a sour. Wow. Um, which you don't think about as being, you know, you think of that as being like really a modern thing, but it's not. Um, so they had some diversity. They didn't probably make a lot of ales, um, but there were a couple British-style breweries that also kind of made it um, all the way up to Prohibition. They didn't get totally swamped by the Germans. And uh, they were making some ales and porters and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, mostly mostly on the lighter side. Ethan, be before you worked on the book, were you did you have the same interest in, in the beer history of Buffalo? Or, or did this kind of spark it? Um, I certainly had a little bit of an interest. Like I had enough interest that I wanted to know more. And I was aware of the two or three buildings that were former brewery buildings that, you know, kind of intrigued me. I just sort of wondered what they were all about. The other thing, though, that uh, that was happening around the same time as our as our brewing industry was our malting industry. And this we very, very only barely touched on in the book because there's really nowhere near as much historical record about what was happening with malting. If you're a malting company, your only customer is breweries. So you don't leave a lot of advertising, you know, beer trays and coasters and stuff like that. The malting companies didn't have all that kind of stuff. But we had three or four malting companies in Buffalo that were huge. They were so big that there is no way that their, that their grain was only being used in Buffalo. They were exporting their grain probably everywhere they could in about a 500-mile radius. That includes New York City, Pittsburgh, Philly, probably Chicago, Detroit, Boston. Ohio. Uh, maybe, maybe even in Canada. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Cincinnati. And you think, were, were they, were they getting all their grain from, from western New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio? They were getting their game... They were getting it mostly from the American Midwest. The, one of the reasons that Buffalo became this giant milling center was the Erie Canal and the Great Lakes. So all that grain was being shipped across the Great Lakes, and then it had to be offloaded into a grain elevator and then loaded back onto a canal boat to take it down to the uh, Hudson and out the, the mouth there in New York. So um, because we had the Erie Canal, we had all of these grain elevators, and because we had all these grain elevators, the malting companies and some of the, the grain elevator companies just became maltsters. They're like, wait, we're sitting on a bunch of grain. We can make it like worth even more by malting it. So wow. that's how that happened. But it was, yeah, it's, it's a pretty exciting part of the story, but it's one that was a lot harder to research and substantiate, unfortunately. But we know that those maltsters were huge. Uh, you can just see the old buildings and how big they were. That's that's really cool. Yeah, I have. I don't think I've had anyone talk about malt history before ever. So maybe for that reason. Yeah. Well, there you go. Even though we yeah. we talk a lot right. about craft malt, you know. 
I mean, we definitely talked sure. about and the origins of of grain and malt, you know, but we haven't really talked about that era. So it's like 1870s to prohibition. That's like after Civil mm-hmm. War, trains, mm-hmm. refrigeration, growth, you know, uh, technology. Yeah. The story of beer, like the, the, the story of the evolution of beer in Buffalo really is the story of the evolution of the technologies. I mean, you just named a couple of the big ones. Artificial refrigeration was actually developed for beer. Um, it turns out to be great for food too, right? I mean, there's all kinds of other <laughs> uses for it. But the, uh, the companies that put the money into developing it uh, were breweries because they wanted to control fermentation temperatures. And then after that, they wanted to control you know, the conditioning temperature of the beer, and then they wanted to control uh, the temperature that the beer was transported at. So rail cars, refrigerated rail cars, that was an innovation that came out of the brewing industry as well. Wow. No, th- th- those are those are great things, man. And there's so much history to dive into. So the book's called Buffalo Beer? Yes, Buffalo Beer, the history of brewing in the Nickel City. It's uh, Arcadia Press, um, and it's still in print. I think you can uh, you can go to their website and pick it up. Um, it used to be History Press, but now it's Arcadia. So the publisher's name has changed over the years. Wow, still there. Well, that's a great. And story. it's part of a series. There there is one for Brooklyn, and I think there's one for you know any substantial city in the U.S. There is uh, an edition of this that was written by someone local who knows the local history. Wow, it, it is fascinating. You know, um, we're going to jump to another yeah. topic. We're talking about beer judging. Um, one reason we bu- we booked the show today is that you said you had been judging at the GABF. Yes. So t- tell us about that and just, you know, how you got started in judging. Did you, are you BJCP certified? Do you have any mm-hmm. qualifications besides being a, just, a, just a good brewer? <laughs> Um, well, you don't have to have any like literal qualifications other than when you apply to get into the judge's pool, you do need to get some recommendations from people that you know can speak to your judging ability. They do take into account if you have any qualifications, but uh, there's plenty of people that I was judging with who don't have BJCP or Cicerone certification. I have both. Um, I'm, uh, there's many levels of BJCP. I'm certified, which is not a super high level. Um, at some point to advance in levels in BJCP, uh, you have to start uh, you know, grading exams and helping the, the actual organization to, to accrue the points. And I've never really gone quite that far. Um, Cicerone, I think, has four levels. And I'm, I'm a, a, a certified Cicerone, which is the the lowest of the levels that requires like an in-person comprehensive test. There's advanced and master above me. Um, and there are not too many masters at all, actually. I think that number is still, you know, sub 30. Um, I don't know how many advanced Cicerones there are now. I don't really keep total track. But yeah, I got BJCP certified because I was doing so much homebrew judging and whatnot. And I wanted to I wanted to make sure that I knew what I was talking about. So um a lot of that is learning, you know, to identify off flavors and to identify what causes those off flavors so that you can give the brewer uh, good feedback as to, you know, not just what's wrong, but why something's wrong. Um, and uh, so after, after applying to be in that pool, I think I waited, I think it was probably four years between my applying uh, to be in the pool and my being asked to come out and judge GABF 
first time I did that was in 2019. Um, and then I haven't judged since because actually 2020, right, they didn't do anything. 2021, they had a very limited judging pool because it was still sort of COVID. Uh, so this is the first time they had people, like a lot of people back in Denver to, to judge it. And this year they had, uh, this is amazing, they had 9,950 entries. They had just 50 entries shy of 10,000 beers to judge. That's so amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, it's an incredible right. feat of uh, of organization and logistics on their side, let alone all the judging. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, we're going to take a short yeah. break. We'll be back in a few minutes cool. on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio on HRN. I recently hosted a live podcasting event with local beer and spirits makers from beautiful Somerset County, New Jersey. We spoke on the farm that is home to Flounder Brewery and Belmar Distillery, one of the most beautiful stops along the Sip and See Craft Beverage Trail. To me, those two worlds, brewery and distillery, are extremely complementing businesses, especially in a unique location like this. So it immediately helped this become a destination to have a great experience, whether it's the beer atmosphere we've got going in here on the old barns or the great experience you can have in there with these incredible cocktails that are created there. It's complementary to each other. You can have two completely different experiences all within a 10-foot walk from each other. Before the event, I was able to tour the area and see the historic Bridge Tender's house along the serene DNR Canal, walk the bike and hiking trails, and take in the lush farmland. Then we settled into the centuries-old Dutch barn turned brewery for a lively discussion. It was always important for us to create our space, our livelihood that we want to share with everybody else of being a community-centric location. It is what makes us a brewery in this state different from a bar and a restaurant. Um, you know, we're obviously family-friendly here. Um, we have a lot of different groups that have their meetings here during the week. We just really want to become a community hub. You can listen to this episode of Beer Sessions Radio, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Somerset County Tourism for supporting this episode. Learn more about the Sip and See Passport Program at visitsomersetnj.org. That's visit s-o-m-e-r-s-e-t-n-j.org. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Hey, become a member and support us at heritageradionetwork.org. There's over 30 shows each week, food, farming, cocktails, and beer shows, all on heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking with Ethan Cox of Community Beer Works in Buffalo. And one of the legends in New York State, State Brewing, he had just come back from judging at the GABF, the Great American Beer Fest, and... Um, I'm, we're going to dive into that now because it, it's it's this very interesting world that I want to know more about. So, how many how many beers were sure. submitted for the GABF this year? So this year they got just fifty entries shy of ten thousand nine thousand nine hundred and fifty beers. Wow! Um, in uh, a number of categories, uh, strictly speaking, there are. 98 categories. Many of those categories, though, have subcategories. So the total number of categories is, I don't know, like 130 or something like that. Um, and beers are judged in three rounds. So you have a, a first round, 
uh, where you know you have a form and you give feedback to the brewers because if they don't get past the first round, uh, that's the only feedback they're going to get. They're not going to get a medal. So, um, so you you in the first round for every beer, the, the the judges at the table do feedback on on each entry, and the the standard way of doing this this is a lot like what you do in BJCP as well. Uh, you get the flight of beers. You go through each beer on your own without saying anything uh, to the other judges. You do your taste, you take your notes, and you move on to the next beer. And when you've gotten through your flight, usually nine to 12 beers in the flight, something like that, after all the judges are done, you go back over those beers, and this time you talk about them. And you try to see if you know everything that you've picked out is also what other judges have picked out, or maybe you missed something. Um, we recognize that judges have different sort of thresholds for different kinds of flavors, right? So, like famously, one of those flavors that's generally an off flavor is uh, is called diacetyl or diacetyl, and it's kind of a buttery flavor. You've probably had it in some beers. Maybe you didn't know that it was a flaw. At very low levels in certain styles, it's kind of acceptable. But generally speaking, if you bring the beer up towards your nose and it smells like movie popcorn, you've got a diacetyl issue. Like yeah. that's that's way too much. Yeah, or sometimes and, the, uh, the lines aren't clean in someone's draft or something. Oh uh, yes, yeah. Oh man, I don't even want to go there. But yeah, yeah. I mean, so many beers are ruined by the draft system, not by the brewer. But you know, who gets blamed? Uh, usually, uh, people, the general public, doesn't really realize that that's where a beer can get ruined, and so they just think the brewery is not there very good. So, um, so if you own a bar, please clean your lines. That's that's really something I would like <laughs> you to do. Uh, every two weeks, ideally. Um, but yeah, so you, you 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 talk with the other judges and you say, hey, you know, I think I detected a little bit of this. Did anybody else get that? No, I really didn't. But then I'm not very sensitive to it. Whatever, you hash it out. Make sure that you've got a generalized agreement. And then you decide which of those beers you're going to pass forward to a metal round versus not. Um then there's uh, then there's secondary rounds that are kind of like that, and then so there's be, third rounds that are that, metal rounds. What what categories did you judge, and and about how many judges were involved? Sure. Well, the way uh, the way the Brewers Association is doing it now, uh, because they are still worried about COVID, they are still kind of breaking things up a little bit. So I was in a pool of about, I don't know, I'm going to say there was about sixty or seventy judges for that three day stretch. And then a day later, 60 or 70 other judges came in and did the next set of beers. And then for the final round, and I think that that's kind of happening right now, or maybe just happened a day or two ago, um, they bring in yet another set of judges. Now, I'm not sure that you can't judge in all three, you probably could, but I was only really able to spare uh, those three days. So I went out there and judged in the first round. Um, Geez, what what kinds of styles did I have? I'm trying to think. I had uh, I had American fruit beers at one point. I had many rounds of American style IPA because that is one of the most popular <laughs> styles, and it gets a lot of entries. So you get a lot of everybody does some rounds of IPA. It's just unavoidable. Um, I believe this year there were like over 400 beers just in the IPA category. Um, Ethan, wait when you did, when you uh, taste wait when you yeah. t- when you taste. Um, do you have a yeah. pa- palate cleanser? Is there anything else you're yeah. e- eating or drinking while you taste? Uh, lots of water and lots of matzo. <laughs> <laughs> that's our 
that's our palate cleanser, which uh, it, 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 it warms my heart. Um, so yeah, uh, you, you do, especially with IPAs. I mean, there's, there's no way, like I had to eat uh, a fair amount of cracker in between each beer and then wash it down just to like, just to kind of reset my palate. Cause you know, all of that bitterness, all of that hop flavor and aroma, but especially the bitterness starts to build up and you just can't taste anything after a while. So you definitely need to, um, drink a lot of water and chew on a lot of crackers. Um, ideally crackers without a lot of flavor, which is why Mott's is perfect. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I did, uh, American amber lagers at one point, which means, you know, not just like red ales, but also like American style Martins and stuff like that. Um, I did a metal round of fruited, uh, wood and barrel aged sours. So any beer that has fruit in it and touched a barrel gets in that category. So that was pretty interesting. So that could be like a, like a framboise lambic or something. Yeah, actually, there was one entry that was very much aimed at being like sort of a traditional Lambic style, uh, even though it was produced, you know, by an American brewer somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, they there's usually for especially complicated beers like that, there's usually some production notes. And uh, I, I know we got one that said, you know, spontaneous fermentation. So that's that's a, an attempt at a Lambic style thing. But you, you um, I had a round of chili beers. <laughs> oh, wow. Did that did that yeah. wreck wreck you for the day? Uh, you know what? It I was afraid that it would, but thankfully, at least the flight we got, um, there was only one of two, one or two of them that were like really hot. Most of the rest of them tried to use chili more as like a flavor agent than just you know capsaicin bomb, like a pepper. I, I've um, had a jalapeno beer from upstate yeah. that that yeah, you taste yeah. like green pepper, and it was quite good. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've had I had a couple that had that that flavor harmoniously balanced with you know other elements of the beer, and it just it was really really delicious. And it's not like a Cave Creek chili beer where it's just like hot, and you're like, yeah, you know, uh, that's that's you know the 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 way brewers are now. They're a lot more sophisticated, and they're often a lot more subtle, and they they're deft with their use of ingredients. And so that was true for the chili beers. But yeah. Just like you were saying, like I was afraid before I got that round. I'm like, that's going to be it for me today. Holy crap! Do I have to do a round after that? But it turned out that mostly they were they were subtle and quite nice. There were a couple that had some heat, uh, but you know, just drank a lot of water and ate a lot more matzo. And you're tasting; they're all blind, right? Completely blind. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, the judges are also you know uh, really directed not to. You shouldn't even try to guess. There's no point in guessing. Uh, you're probably wrong anyway, but even if you're right, what did you gain, right? So not only do we never even discuss like, oh, I think this might have been made by X, Y, or Z, but we even try to avoid comparing it to existing beers because that too could bias the way we think about it, right? Oh, so yeah. we really try to be as blind as possible, absolutely. And that's not a problem because all the beers are brought to us from behind a drape, behind you know, uh, pipe and drape kind of stuff on the other side of the room where an army of volunteers is pouring these out and assembling them into flights. Um, and then they bring them out on a tray and they just, they're just in a little cup with a number. That's it. Wow. Hey, did you, did you ever yeah. win any GABF awards at community beer works? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Yes. <laughs> uh, one of our beers, one of our beers won uh, GABF uh, several years ago. Uh, and it's that IPA. 
and uh, and uh, it won in the American IPA category. It might won in the session IPA category actually, uh, just because its ABV is like four point five. Um, and I wish I could say it won a gold, uh, but I think it won a bronze, what I recall. Um, but we are, I, I believe, uh, until, I mean, I know they're going to announce the awards uh, Saturday. Uh, but for the time being, we're the only brewery in Buffalo that's won a GABF award. So that's pretty cool. Wow, man. It, 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 it's, yeah. so, so not every brewery is submitting. I mean, I always thought every brewery is submitted to the GABF. Well, you know, that's the thing, man. Uh, you don't know who didn't submit. So, you know, you, you, if there's some beers out there that you think like, my word, I can't believe that's never won a gold medal at GABF. It might be that they just don't submit the beer to competition. Um, first of all, there is a there's a fee. So every beer you enter costs you. I can't remember what the fee is right now, but every every beer costs you like, I think it's like 40 bucks a beer. You might get a break if you enter 10 or something. I'm not sure. But um, for sure, some breweries don't find the cost uh, to be you know worthwhile because mm, most often you don't win, right? Uh, you do get really good feedback. And so that should justify the price no matter what. Uh, but you, you, every, everyone gets a taste, tasting notes? Yeah, every beer is going to get some tasting notes, whether it goes on to a metal round or not. Now, if it gets a medal, you don't really care about the tasting notes anymore. <laughs> but uh, but uh, for sure, if you don't get a medal, and most beers are not going to, of course, um, then those tasting notes are really, really – that's one of the most important things for the judges is that we give valuable feedback to the brewers uh, because for, their, for, their, for the price of admission, man, they deserve you know, quality feedback. Uh, so they understand – maybe they don't want to change it. Maybe they're very happy with the beer as it is, but they can at least understand why it didn't make – you know, it didn't get a medal. Um, that's always been a problem for us with the whale. The whale is a wonderful brown ale, but it doesn't it doesn't fit into the British brown ale category style guidelines perfectly, and it doesn't fit into the American brown ale style guidelines perfectly. We use a clean American yeast, but we're using British malts, and especially faucet brown malt, which is really uh, at the heart of the flavor of that beer. And so because it's not really a very good British brown ale and not really a perfect American brown ale, it's, it's a beer that is uh, hard to win a medal with. That's always the feedback we get is like, well, this is a little too British if it's in the American category or, oh, it's a little too American if it's in the British category. So we like the beer the way it is. We're not going to change it just because it won't win. But we, uh, we don't enter it anymore because, you know, I think we already know. I like that beer a lot. That. That's the first beer I ever, I ever tasted that you made. Um, let, let's talk yeah. about beers. So you've got sure. the whale that I know, and then what if you have a flagship? Like a you have a pale ale flagship. Well, we had uh, a flagship pale ale. It was called Frank. We haven't produced it in a while now because, uh, unfortunately, one of the one of the downsides of the explosion of IPAs is that um, it's hard to sell a pale ale anymore. I mean, ask our friends down at Sierra Nevada. They, they're making it work, but they had to make a lot of IPAs too, right? Just like anybody. Um, and we found that in our market, uh, we were better off concentrating on beers that we could at least label as an IPA. Um, I loved Frank. I thought it was a very, very good modern pale ale. Um, 
certainly inspired by Sierra Nevada, but using different hops and certainly a different malt makeup. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a beer that we will still produce every now and then, basically for the tap room. Um, but it's not something that we can really move on the shelves or move uh, through uh, bars or restaurants in a world where IPAs reign supreme. Yeah. So that IPA is is a flagship beer for us. It's a session IPA. The Whale is a flagship. Um, our flagship, like full strength IPA, is called Good Neighbor. Um, that's uh, seven seven percent or so, seven point one, I think. Um, and uh, and then uh, some other beers that we've uh, kind of made over and over again. Well, we've made a lot of whale variants because a brown ale turns out to be a perfect canvas for doing kind of cool things. So like we've done like a cherry infused uh, whale, which is really nice. Um, we're about to re-release our Choco Taco version of the whale, um, which is bittersweet because I think they just stopped making Choco Tacos. <laughs> What, but, uh, what, you, what makes it Choco Taco whale? We literally throw waffle cones into the into the boil kettle and uh, and some chocolate. <laughs> that oh, gets right. it done. Wow, yeah, it's really good. So yeah. th- that's experimenting, oh. right? It is. It is, and you know, it's along the lines of the sort of pastry stout kind of thing that people are into these days. Um. Let's see. Uh, what else? What else qualifies as sort of a, a regular beer for us? Um, oh well, uh, our other like our other big big seller, especially right now this time of year, is uh, is a light lager that's called Let's Go Pills. Um, if you're a brewery in Buffalo right now and you don't make a beer that ties into the bills, you're a fool. Um, we've been making that beer for several years uh, before the bills became good again. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's go pills is a light American lager. It uses, uh, some rice and some corn. So some people might say that's, you know, not craft, but, uh, I would say, you know, whatever we make it. Um, and it's, uh, it's a, that's a good seller, especially during football season, as you might, as you wow. might assume. So the quick backstory yeah. on the, on the whale, the brown ale, um, it's yeah. doesn't fit those GABF beer styles, but it's really good. Mm. Um, yeah. When when did you guys first make that? And what's the backstory on it? As a brewer, as a brewery owner. Because mm-hmm. even now, well, when, you say, actually, when you say brown ale to me, I love brown ales, I love porters, I love black lagers. But it, oh, yeah. What, what's your backstory on that? Mm-hmm. So um, I think I mentioned uh, when I was telling the, the background, um, I wasn't the brewer. Uh, when we started off, uh, our brewer was a guy named Rudy and he's actually the brewer at Thin Man now and has been for a while, but he brought that recipe, uh, to us when we started, it was one of his homebrew recipes and, uh, he had a different name for it, I think at the time. So then we decided that that, uh, I think he wanted to call it the brown whale. And I think we looked that up on urban dictionary, which is always a good idea when you're about <laughs> to put a, a beer out there. And we decided, okay, maybe we won't call it the brown whale. But it's a brown ale, so that's kind of redundant anyway. So we just shortened it to the whale. But um, it was absolutely one of uh, Rudy's homebrew recipes, pretty unmodified. And it the the main the main malt that drives the flavor is a uh, is a British malt called Fawcett Brown Malt. And I think when Rudy constructed that recipe, he was literally thinking, how can I make a beer taste as much like Fawcett Brown Malt as possible? And you know. 
Like if you know from cooking, if you want something to have a certain flavor, you need to use other flavors to really bring that out. You don't just like go straight up with one flavor. You need contrasting flavors and other complementary flavors to really get to where you want to go. So it uses a fair proportion of faucet brown malt, but it also uses a couple of different kinds of chocolate malt to really drive that faucet brown malt flavor. Um, yeah, delicious, uh, delightful, um, lighter than you think. I mean, it's dark in color, but it's not heavy. Uh, it doesn't have a very thick mouthfeel. It's actually a fairly easy drinking beer. That's what I love, and man. And it dark, goes really well. Dark beers that drink light. I love them. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's you, you mentioned, like, you know, dark lagers, which same idea, right? Um, but it, it also pairs really well with a lot of food. I think of it as being a great culinary beer. Um, you know, people don't drink as many dark beers in the summer, but if you think about a lot of what you cook in the summer, stuff that comes off the grill, be it fish or, or meat or vegetables, you know, it's going to have that, that blackened uh, Maillard reaction, which is also what makes brown malt brown. So those flavors go really well together. And I think that, I think that um, for grilling season, uh, brown ales are, are usually a really good complement to what you're eating, depending on you what know else that is going this on. This summer, I probably drank more like dark, dark lagers, black lagers, you know, with summer food um, than IPAs. Um, and that's mm -hmm. neat because I've never talked to anyone about that before. Because so, so many pairings, people were saying IPA with grill, IPA with barbecue, but yeah, so, yeah. I, I agree with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, IPAs are hard to pair, I find. They are a great drinking beer on their own, but because a lot of their flavors and aromas are so extreme, they can't, and especially, you know, modern IPAs are a lot less bitter. But, you know, back three, four, five years ago or a decade, certainly, um, bitterness was a big feature of IPAs too, and bitterness is a tough one. When you're in a pairing situation, you need to find something to contrast that with to really make it work. And so you find like sweet things. But uh, one of the unusual pairings that really works with IPAs, check this out sometime if you get a chance, carrot cake. <laughs> Why is that? Because yeah. the carrot is neutral sweet? Yeah. It well, you know, all the spicing in a carrot cake is not too far off from your pumpkin, your pumpkin spices, right? It's a little bit of like allspice. It's a little bit maybe a cinnamon or of uh, clove, and uh, those flavors just make a really good contrast to the uh, the piney and the resinous flavors in hops. They make a good contrast to the floral flavors in hops if you got those kinds of hops. Now, if you're loaded up with tropical hops, which is pretty much you know in in fashion these days, I'm not sure if that's going to work as well with a carrot cake. Actually, now that I think about it, but your your older school, your <laughs> West Coast IPAs, with that little bit of crystal malt sweetness, mm, it's perfect. That sounds great. Actually, last night I was yeah. tasting a bunch of hot sauces with some folks, and um, we kept we kept finding hints of carrot in them. And uh, oh wow. I think, well, yeah, like a lot of Northeastern farm-based sauces. I mean, carrots affordable and accessible. It does provide a nice base. It's like neutral sweetness. That's what I thought you were thinking about too. That 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 might yeah. help. That might help also with the bitterness. Um, but that's neat, yeah, I think man. That's right. T talk about other yeah. beers. It was last winter we started. It's funny. This show was a work in progress. Where since last winter. One time on Facebook, I don't know what we were talking about, a collab or a holiday beer. Um, and I'm not even sure what started it, but I think we pulled up an old 
a Ron Patterson, like a 1900, yeah. like, like a high hop, yeah. high gravity beer. Um, I don't know if you want to, I don't know, were you asking for a holiday beer? What, what, what was the start of that conversation? Cause um, we, we were talking enter, about holiday beers. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, we were, we were talking about like what makes uh, a good Christmas beer. Um, and, and so I think we were trying to, trying to riff on that. And I think that you brought up, um, Ron Pattinson and, you know, one of these like older beer styles. And I, I bounded on over to my bookcase and pulled out that, uh, that very book. And we talked about some of those old recipes that, uh, that he's kind of reconstructed and, uh, some breweries have gone and actually made commercial versions. And, uh, and I think that's really, really cool. Um, of course, it's an, it's really hard to actually make a beer um, just like it used to be made because those malts maybe don't exist anymore. Um, you might not know what kind of yeast they used. That might not be in the recipe. Um, and you might not be able to even get those kinds of hops anymore. Hops kind of come and go. But, uh, but for sure, um, there are some really, really good examples of uh, contemporary versions of older beers. And I think we were talking specifically about one of the ones that was made by Pretty Things, that was one of uh, one of those Ron Pattinson beers. Yeah, Ron Pattinson, man, and Pretty Things was was was. I remember it. It was like eight percent, and I don't want to like wax nostalgic, but you know, you probably have this experience. I do. I remember beers that I loved, and I go back to them. Yeah. Um, that Pretty Things beer was was special. It was like eight percent. It was it was hoppy. It had it was dark. Um, it, it was joy. Yep. So yeah. So we were talking about uh, old Ron Patterson recipes and you know yeah and uh, and the old uh, the Pretty Things ale and beer project that was out of Somerville, Mass. Uh, a guy named Dan Paquette and his wife Martha who uh, left the industry in the U.S. and actually went back to Britain. And they are still brewing to this day. Uh, I can't remember the name of the brewery they were working with or for now. Um, but they were one of those early, um, you know, gypsy brewing type outfits as well. They uh, eschewed the uh, the cost of putting their own brewery together. And instead, they made all of those pretty things with spears at uh, other breweries in Massachusetts, which was, uh, which was an innovative model at the time. There was just them and I think uh, Stillwater. And maybe a couple others that were using that sort of model. Um, most of those companies eventually started their own breweries. <laughs> I know, e- Evil Twin, and uh, yeah, and, yeah. And it, it, it was it was also again. I don't want to say it was, it was romantic. You know that it was like pirates. All these all these people figuring out ways to to, to start a brewery, just like you did. You know, um, yeah, yeah. And you learned a lot. You you definitely learned a lot, man. It's great talking to you. Um, the the last thing is what are the beers do you drink? You know you're you're in Buffalo. Um, mm-hmm. What are what are a couple of beers that that you, you drink? You were on the New York State uh, Brewery Brewers Association board for a few years. Um, mm-hmm. Going to give a shout out to a few other brewers and breweries that you know. Oh, absolutely! I'm always happy to do that. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a local, I'll give you a New York state, and then I'll give you something that's more like global slash worldwide All right. as far as a pick. Yeah. Um, in Buffalo right now, uh, we have a lot of, we have a lot of great breweries. Um, 
One of my favorites is uh, called Autark, A-U-T-A-R-K. They're a very small brewery, um, also on the west side of Buffalo. And they, they just opened up pretty recently. Um, and I know, the, I know the brewer slash owner. He's a good guy. His name is Joe DePrima. He's been putting this brewery together for well over five years, just taking his time, just doing it right. And uh, he produces a lot of like lower gravity beers, uh, so lighter in ABV. And one of my favorites is his British Mild. Nobody's really making a mild um, on the regs, but he does. And it's just a it's a lovely three point I think five maybe three point six percent beer. Um, and it's exactly what a British Mild promises to be. It's got a nice malt character, has just enough of a noble hop character to count but it's not a hoppy beer and it's had an ABV where you can just sit there at his lovely little brewery and tap room and drink a bunch of them and then hop on your bike and ride safely home. So wow, that's a great um, intro. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I'm, I'm very fond of, of him and what he's doing. And I think uh, smaller breweries that sell all of their beer in their own tap rooms are, you know, the way of the future. And he's, he's a really good example of that. We got a few others like that in Buffalo that just opened too, but. He's one of my favorites. So that's Autark. Autark, yeah. A-U-T-A-R-K. Autark. Autark. Yeah. I don't know where that name comes from or what it means, to be honest, I should ask. Um, All right. Okay, so that's in Buffalo. Um, New York State. I mean, in New York State right now, uh, the one of the most impressive beer makers is uh, – just up the river from you in uh, in the Hudson Valley, and that would be Suarez. Um, I think that guy has got something that most brewers don't. You know, some kind of a touch, some kind of an understanding. Uh, his his beers are are poetry, and uh, what he does especially well, he's really good with like sours and spontaneous fermentation. I, I really like those beers, but for my money, his pilsners are out of this world. Um, he makes three, in fact, different Pilsners. He makes one called Palatine. And um, I'm trying to remember the name of the other two right now, but the Palatine Pils in particular is my favorite of the three. And uh, it's just a lovely, crisp, German-style Pilsner made with, uh, I think, pretty much all New York State ingredients, but possibly some German malt. I'm not even sure. I can tell you, though, that it, it tastes exactly right. It is one of the most refreshing, amazing Pilsners that I've had outside of actual German Pilsners in Germany or uh, certain breweries in Denver, like Prost or Bierstadt. So yeah, Suarez, Palatine Pils. Huge, huge compliment. That That's a great one. And then uh, beyond New York? Well, beyond New York, uh, right now, uh, I'm drinking a Sam Adams Oktoberfest. Um, I was inspired to do that by, uh, by another show where uh, people were talking about it. And I thought to myself, you know, it's been a while <clears throat> since I've had one of those, but they are fresh right now. Now's the time to get them. So I uh, scooted on over to our local Wegmans and picked up a 12 pack of uh, Sam Adams Oktoberfest. And man, you know, from the first sip, I was kind of just reminded about how much I love a malt forward um, but still, you know, a relatively light, easy drinking beer. I mean, this comes in at 5.3 and it's got some noble hop character. It's certainly not hopless, 
But this is a beer that's really about malt and the nice complexity and depth of this like sweetness and this breadiness. And yet it finishes really crisp. And um, uh, around this time of year, there's nothing I'd rather do than crack open my first Oktoberfest of the year. And this was it this year. And I am very satisfied with that. So Sam Adams, Oktoberfest. <laughs> Ethan, I'm so happy we got to talk. And um, we will definitely, uh, again, have another show together with some other guests. But thanks so much for taking the time and, 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 and calling in. Um, Absolutely. And you're the best, man. So thanks to Ethan Cox. Big thanks to Armin Spengen, our engineer, and Alex Tran, our producing intern. I'm Jimmy Carboni uh, here on Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks so much. Cheers. All right. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.